You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. Um, well, again, happy Lord's Day. And I uh, hope that all of you are well. Get my music off here. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look at, at the Apostles' Creed. Now, be, because we're doing such a high flyover and not really dealing with any one line very thoroughly, you will know that we will need to be looking at the idea of faith, right? Because you really can't get through the Apostles' Creed without the word believe, right? I believe this. And really, um, perhaps, perhaps there's nothing more arrogant than a Christian can do according to the world than say, I believe something and its implications have effects on your life. Not just mine. It's not just my truth, right? The Apostles' Creed is a primer against postmodernism. Belief in general is, right? Um, we, we're, we're not just saying that we believe this, this is our creed, and then you can have your creed too. We believe that this creed is far-reaching and has big implications for everyone. You also need to um, you also need to walk in the uh, knowledge of the fact that your belief creates that kind of friction within your potential relationships. I mean, that's just that's just the truth. For you to assert, I do believe this, uh, and for you to subscribe to any sort of biblical theology means that you, you know, there's some real exclusivity there. Um, uh, So uh, here we are, uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed and why. We'll go back to where we were last week, uh, kind of a sister text to... um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, and kind of describes what's at the end of all things, and it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them uh, were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this creed out loud. We're gonna and just you can listen to it as I confess it to you. Here's the Apostles' Creed: I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, virgin birth, suffered under Pontius Pilate, historical uh, doctrine, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Okay? Um, not into hell. That's, that's the most important part of that. If we, can, if we can change that to being descended into hell, which is kind of the original reading, most people today, most evangelicals say he descended into Hades, or he descended into Sheol, or he descended to the dead. Um, and that is a parenthetical statement in most 
most confessions. On the third day, he rose again. Uh, praise God. He ascended into heaven. So that's his coronation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The holy, small c, Catholic Church is the universal church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, okay, once you die, uh, and the life everlasting. Amen. Here's a quick history of the creed. Um, and just a quick sum. This is the most uh, ecumenical creed that exists. That is to say, it's another fancy Nancy way of saying that um, it, it's a creed that everyone agrees on, right? Um, uh, this is the oldest creed that we have. Um, uh, Rufinius uh, said in the fourth century that this creed existed and gave us parts of it, actually. Um, it did not come into its current form until probably 700 AD, as far as we can tell. Did the original apostles, uh, all of them, write out one, one thing each? Maybe. Uh, but that's as much as we've got. I, 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 think, I think the question is, does it matter if they did or not? Does that make sense? It's a lot like I talk to people who are doubting their salvation and they're worried about a particular time where they believed or not. And I look at them and I say, well, do you believe and repent now? And they say, well, of course. And I say, well, what are we worried about then? Right? Does that make, that make sense? So the, the Apostles' Creed is no different. It, it really doesn't matter whether the Apostles wrote it or not. We know it's not canon scripture, right? It wasn't, it wasn't included um, in our scriptures. Um, but it, the question is, is it true? And, and I think the answer is certainly yes. From a very, very, very long time ago, early, early church, it has found itself into worship services. That word is liturgy, or the flow of the worship service is liturgy, uh, for a very long time. Not only that, but going back to the 700s, listen to this, going back with the 700s, people would take the Lord's Prayer, and they would take the Apostles' Creed, and they would have their morning and evening devotions via that. Does that make sense? which means they had those things memorized, right? Because th there would be very little um, personal study Bibles in 700 AD, right? So what, what, what would you do? Well, you would memorize the Lord's Prayer, and you would memorize the Apostles' Creed, and this was your morning and evening devotional material. This is kind of this is what, what you did um, as, you, as you went through it. Uh, fast forward uh, 700 years, and the Reformers themselves gave happy assent to this, they included it in their liturgies. They included it in their devotions, which is a, a, a big deal because if you know anything about the Reformation, they were they were wanting to throw off everything. Some of them actually, uh, they were wanting to throw off everything that wasn't just strictly from the Bible. All the old trappings. Some were more radical than, than others, but the fact that this made it into a Reformation liturgy is a big deal. It shows uh, the the true biblical nature of um, and, and, and the truth of the creed. Uh, several Christian traditions today, uh, which are but not limited to Anglicans, Lutherans, and Methodists, they use this creed, but they use it as an interrogative, right? So, Tariki, an interrogative is a question. So, when you get baptized, what that means is they'll ask you, they'll say the, the Apostles' Creed, but they instead of turning into statements, they, they turn it all to questions. Do you believe that? 
right? And then you have the opportunity to confess your faith faith there in, in the baptismal waters. That's that's what you do. So it's a when we say that baptism is a public profession of faith, that's actually what it is. You're you're being asked questions and you're giving public answers in front of family um, and friends. Um, Legan Duncan, who's uh, one of my favorite favorite ministers, said, uh, one can find almost all of the component parts in the writings of the Apostles' Creed in some of the second century church fathers, which are Justin, Martyr, Irenaeus, and the famous Tertullian. Um, so this has been there for a long time. The second century is a long time ago, guys. Uh, you're talking about 150 AD. Um, this, this has been around, okay? Um, let's look at belief before we look at the creed, because I, I, I think that that's important, Okay. Um, let's look at it more, more specifically. Christian faith and Christian belief uh, is critically important to salvation. You already know this, but it's critically important to Christian growth, and I think that's something that we forget. Nobody in this room is going to forget faith alone, that, that confession of salvation. You are going to, on a regular basis, let your routine and your life separate you from the truth that Faith in Christ and belief is never divorced from your everyday life and disposition. The truth about belief is that we all have creeds that we believe all day, every day. And we all, we all confess these creeds, these truths that we live our lives by. Uh, some of these creeds, we were embarrassed to say out loud. We would actually never say them out loud. If you said them out loud, we would, you would say, well, I don't believe that. But in fact, we do, right? Uh, the, my own sinful heart has creeds that are embarrassing to tell. They're so obviously and elementarily false, right? Um, my selfishness tells my mind and my heart back and forth creeds that are, um, yeah, they're, they're embarrassing to say the very least. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is right after they've sort of lined up the hall of faith and all these Christians and their great stories of faith and how they had faith and kind of right in the middle of all of that. Um, verse six comes out and says, and I'll say it again, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so you do have a responsibility to believe, um, but we also know at the same time that that belief is given by God, but just because it's given by God doesn't mean that your belief is not cultivated, right? By you, with some human responsibility. Uh, parenthetical statement, with God's help, of course, um, uh, to believe that these things are true. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Perhaps no other place in Scripture uh, talks better and more succinctly about belief than Romans chapter 4. Uh, and, and of course, here we're talking about in Romans 4 the, the faith of Abraham and his belief or his unbelief or his lack of unbelief. Um, and then as soon as we take a look at this, uh, we're going to 
we're going to get into the creed. Romans chapter 4, verses 18, 19, and 20. Of course, um, Abraham is the darling. He's the Old Testament darling of the New Testament. He's the person that's most quoted, most talked about, most contemplated. Um, he, his covenant is still in effect for you today. You enjoy the covenant blessings of uh, God's promise to Abraham through Jesus Christ. You are one of his children, right? And you love to sing that Father Abraham song too. So there you go. Uh, Romans 4, 18, 19, 20. Read it along with me uh, silently as I read aloud to you. In hope he believed against hope, which is what we must constantly be doing, that he should become the father of many nations. And he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, uh, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So all of these factors coming up against what must be true. His mind was telling him what must be true, and God was telling him what would be true. Verse 20, no unbelief. I love this verse. I love this verse. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I don't know about you, but all my unbelief does is make me waver. That's what it does. It, 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 it moves me back and forth from one foregone conclusion to another that I am constantly making. Some of those conclusions and creeds I am making about people in my life. Others I'm talking about purpose in my life, right? But these creeds are constant, and this is what we've got to do. The reason that biblical literacy is so important is so that we might know what is true, Right? So, so in, in getting in the Apostles' Creed, you're going to find that you believe all of these things very heartily without problem. I think that devotionally what the Apostles' Creed can tell us is, what are those things that I know are true, but I'm acting every day like they're not, right? And of course, what that does is that requires biblical literacy. That requires you knowing what you're supposed to believe. You're believing these promises over here, but what's the promise against that that I'm supposed to believe? It's a lot like the activity that I was called to do this past week. Uh, the senior campus minister called me to the high school uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, I need you to preach the sinfulness of sin to our high schoolers because they have no category for it whatsoever. They have, little, they have little knowledge of depravity, but I don't really want you to talk about depravity as much. He said, I want you to talk about personal responsibility for sin. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Um, what he was saying was, and they're going through this gospel series, he said, you're going to preach part two. Um, he, he said, there is no biblical literacy in them, for the most part, right? I, I mean, of course there is. Some of them are very biblically literate, being brought up in Christian homes, et cetera, et cetera. He said, but on the whole, um, they, they lack a Christian worldview. He, he pleaded with me to pray, pray with him specifically about this, not only this sermon, but just this series and the kids and what they're going through, right? They can't know their personal responsibility and, and what is and is not sin, if they're inundated in the culture without the help of the Bible, they can't feel the sinfulness of sin because they even know what it is. Likewise, you. How are you supposed to know 
what you believe, what creed you're supposed to hold to, right? Uh, the intensity with which you're to live your life. Um, how you battle unbelief is with truth, and that requires you getting in to God's word. All right. Um, if, if you need a memory verse to memorize in Ecclesia this week, please make it Romans chapter 4, verse 20. And just commit that to memory and write it down on a note card and stick it on your bathroom mirror or wedge it in the dashboard of your car or write it and put it up in your kids' room so that they can memorize it too. I think this is a fantastic verse for us to memorize as a faith family together. Um, and I'll read it to you again. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he knew, uh, but he, excuse me, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What an awesome awesome story um, uh, and what a wonderful mode uh, to live and what example we have um, here in Andrew and Abraham. Let's look at the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Um, as we've said before, saying the words I believe is perilous for you. It, admittedly, it's, it's socially and emotionally dangerous, um, which, which you already know, uh, especially if you're holding that those ha have implications for others. Um, when we say, I believe in, in God, the Father Almighty, uh, what we're meaning is that we believe in one God, but we're also in that first line, we're also saying, we're sort of implying some Trinitarian conclusions, right? That there is God and that he is a father. There are more persons of Trinity to come. Um, some of you uh, don't have the best relationship with your dad, and, and so to confess the fatherhood of God within the first line brings some problems, but you need to know uh, that God is a father to you. That's the reality of it, right? Uh, he loves you uh, dearly, um, and the fatherhood of God is a very robust doctrine. Right along the fatherhood of God, there butts up an adjective, and the adjective is almighty. Now, Bruce, as great of a man as he is, uh, lacks greatly in power. He is not remotely omnipotent, right? Uh, qu quite a weak man, right? Just like all of us are. Um, but your father, when you confess, uh, when you confess and when you confess who he is, what you say is you say, he has power that I don't have. And I don't know about you, but let me just be very vulnerable with you for a moment and talk to you personally. I think a lot of times the reason that all of us feel weak uh, or, excuse me, the reason that we feel sort of paralyzed in a particular situation is that we feel weak and unable to do anything about it. And yet you and I have a God who has already said that the MO of your life is the Lord's strength in your own weakness and that that's just the way that it is, Right? Uh, and we have a beautiful reminder of that here in the first line. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Mighty. Unable to run interference on all of my weakness. Unable to get in between things that I just think can't happen. Right? I just don't think that God has enough power to mend this relationship. I just don't think that God has enough power to do this, that, and the other. No, no, it is never a matter of power. It's always a matter of purpose. It's always a matter of purpose because if God purposes to do it, then it will come to pass, right? 
Okay. Um, so uh, let me encourage you as we look at, at, at such opening statements as I believe in these things, not to be slow to believe. Okay? If we look at the apostles, we see men who are very, very, very slow to believe. I mean, if you could learn any lesson from all of them, you would learn that they're slow to believe. Even after the death of Jesus, two verses before the Great Commission, this is the resurrected Jesus here, okay? Listen to what verse 16 and 17 says um, in Matthew chapter 28. And now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them in a resurrected body. And when they saw him and worshiped him, but some doubted. That's the end of verse 17. Um, these guys are so slow to believe. Uh, they're, they're, they're just slow to believe. Um, they were slow to believe on the Emmaus Road. Also at the end of that gospel story, Luke chapter 24. Some of you are very familiar with the Emmaus Road story. Uh, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Perhaps some of your prayers can say, God, give me, a, give, me a swift, give me a swift belief to believe you and not be slow to believe. Uh, and then it goes on. It says he's the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, he's, the, he, he's the creator of heaven and earth. I was talking to my students just this week as we were talking about the doctrine of the preciousness of Christ that the most foundational truths in Scripture are, number one, the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of everything. But a close second underneath the gospel are God's creator rights, right? I mean, it's, it runs a quick second right underneath there, right? Um, because it communicates who God is and who we aren't. And so when we say... Uh, every day, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth. We are also recognizing our role in that creation, our place, right? That, that, that we're a part of his creation, that he's mighty and we're not, that he's our father, father and we're his child. Uh, it is an intimate confession, right, uh, that we should take part in. Next, uh, the creed goes on to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin uh, Mary. Duncan, uh, Legan Duncan, went on to say here at this point, which I, I thought was fantastic. He said, faith is three things. Number one, and please write this down. This is so good. I would rarely ask you to write down a quote, but boy, is this wonderful. And I certainly could not say it any better than this. Faith is three things. It is a response to revelation. It is a response to revelation. It is embrace of truth. It is embrace of truth. And it is trust in a person. And it is trust in a person. Faith is three things. It is a response to revelation. It is embrace of truth, and it is trust in a person. This is where things get very particular, right? We're talking about someone's son, right? Um, right now, we're going through the systematic theology upstairs at night for two- and three-year-olds with Ruby, and we're going through the part where God the Father doesn't have a body, but Jesus does, and boy, does that, that run 
difficult, you know, because I'm trying to explain to her, in fact, that God is in the room with us, but he has no body, right? So we're trying to, trying to get through all that. Uh, and yet the personhood of God, the, the tangible, you can, you can see and feel and touch him, is Jesus Christ. This is, this is your person to believe in, right? And of course, uh, this is the personhood of the Father and, and the, the Spirit are there as well. Yes, you do believe in the virgin birth. Uh, if you are a Bible-believing evangelical, um, yeah, you you believe it. Um, and uh, this is a major sticking point, major sticking point for so many people. Um, but it's certainly not the craziest thing that you believe, not by a long shot. Um, so... Uh, God is virgin born for a very important reason, and that has to do with original sin, and that's a big, long doctrinal lecture that we're not going to get in today. Uh, but, but suffice it to say, uh, despite all the, the parsing out of all the words in Isaiah chapter 7 and what all the scholars, both liberal and moderate, may say about what it means, uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. She was probably 13 max, maximum 14 years old. Um, which is a phenomenon, and uh, she was uh, spiritually indebted and in need to her own son. Um, and it was the Holy Spirit, of course, that, that made this come to pass. And this is how God did this. Could God have come as an angel if he wanted to? Yes. Could God have come as a reigning king if he wanted to? Sure. God could have, in his wisdom, chose any way that he wanted, but he slew Jesus before the foundation of the world. Like this, this was always the plan. The plan was him always to be born in this way, always to die this way. This was it, right? And it would be funny if the scriptures only said before the foundation of the world once, but it says it over and over and over again, that we just have to throw out the testimony of the whole book if we don't believe it, right? Um, so, so it's true. Uh, not only is it true, it's historically true. Listen to the next part of the creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. So now we have a person who is, who is the governor, a Roman governor, right? There is a book in my library um, about Pontius Pilate that is not written by a religious author. Why? Because he was a, I mean, he, he, he was he was a real governmental figure. That's why. Um, and this was a part of the the early creed. So we have Tertullian, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, uh, all these guys giving us incredible detail that that this stuff is coming up. Justin Martyr had, had was so close to the life of Jesus, he had small details on the life of Jesus, extra biblical in nature. Like, for example, as I've told you before, Justin Martyr gave us the detail that Joseph and his father, Jesus, were yoke carpenters. They made farm equipment. That's what they did. Sorry, Mel Gibson, they didn't make tables and chairs, right? They, 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 they made yoke, yoke equipment. That's what they did. That kind of detail, that's crazy. These are the same men that are affirming these details in 150 AD. It, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 is, it is historical. And, and so not only is the creed historical, but we've got history upon history kind of upholding all of it, right? Saying uh, this, is, this is true. And there's plenty of witness, right? Um, this, the creed says here he was crucified, died, and was buried. Was crucified, died, 
and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. Let me make sure that you understand this, and I already know that you do, but I have to tell you all the time in any way. It was a bodily and physical resurrection. It was not an inspirational or spiritual resurrection. Jesus didn't rise in anybody's heart. Um, that didn't happen. We are talking about a body, a bodily resurrection, risen from the dead. Super important. Why the need for it to be physical? Because my sins were physical, and there need to be a physical victory over sin. Physical, vic physical sin, physical victory, bodily resurrection, okay? Um, Jesus gets up from the grave. The Bible says, and please write this verse down, though it is uh, very familiar to you, Romans 10, 9. If I only had one verse, one verse probably to tell someone how to get saved, it would be Romans 10, 9, right? Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9, and believe in your heart that what? That God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Resurrection is the victory of God. And um, you and I are to live against human despair, against human melancholy, against human suffering, against human uh, conditions that propel us away from victory and recognize God's victory in our lives. Um, so re remember our original text in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 said that uh, your faith in this household was built upon uh, the apostles and the prophets. Do you remember that? And that's kind of what propelled us into this creed. Um, I want you to write down this reference, if you will, for me. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And then I want you to turn there, and we're going to read it together. Um, and we're going to see Jesus with his own words talking about what exactly Paul meant when he said that foundation, right? Of course, we're talking about specific beliefs, but to have, to have Jesus talk about it specifically is just the nail in the coffin about its importance to us today. Luke 24, this is the last chapter of Luke, verse 44 and following. Uh, Luke 24, 44, these, these are the words of God. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, there's the foundation, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand those scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures that he's just mentioned, right? The law of Moses. He went to the law of Moses. He said, look, there I am. And he went to the prophets and he said, look, there I am. And he went to the Psalms and said, look, there I am. He explained it to them, right? So that they would understand. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's resurrection again. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Here's the missional God beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You're witnesses of these things. So this sort of wraps up uh, the, the, what I consider to be the center uh, uh, of the confession because it talks about the gospel, 
right? Uh, what's, what's the next part? Well, it's either left out uh, or it needs to be changed, right? And so most evangelicals, we like to change it too. Instead of he descended into hell, uh, we say he descended into Hades. Now, Hades is a Greek word. The, uh, the sort of synonym for it in Hebrew is Sheol, and it's the place of the dead. So let me just help you understand some Old, es- Old Testament eschatology. It's 1105 on a Sunday morning. You're sitting in my living room, and we're talking about Old Testament, uh, Old Testament afterlife, which is just bizarre. But just follow me, okay? You and I, when we die, we have the idea that we're going to go one of two places, right? Um, but in the Old Testament mind, generally, and you, you'll get this sense as you read uh, the Old Testament, it wasn't an idea that they were going up or down or heaven or hell. They were all going to the place of the dead. And the place of the dead was Sheol, okay? And this is in the mind of the average Old Testament person. They just went to the places where, where people died. That's where they went, right? And that place is Sheol, right? S H. E-O-L, Sheol. Uh, for the record, eighth graders can't spell this word, okay? Uh, it's impossible for them to do for whatever reason. It's very easy. Sheol is the place of the dead. Um, this is the place of the dead, and when we confess in, in this creed, he descended to the dead or he descended into Sheol, then this is totally fine. We, we can completely agree with this. Uh I think the difficulty is that the scripture doesn't come right out and says that he does, right? Does that make sense? And that's the reason uh, that that uh, it's kind of an, an a parenthetical statement. Some would argue it does. Um, uh, here's, here's, here's the biggest thing you need to know. He did not descend into hell for the following reasons. Hell, uh, at that time, right, uh, would have been a place of torment and some people say, well, when it said he descended into hell, it was trying to say that he was being tormented because, remember, he became our sin, so he was being tormented, so that would all be equal. The problem with that is Jesus said, I'm going to use your tattoo. I didn't plan on doing this, but this is helpful. Jesus said on the cross, this Greek word, Justin's forearm is great if you haven't looked at it. It says, tetelestai, which in the English means it is finished. So Jesus can't say it is finished in terms of its suffering and then go suffer more. Does that make sense? That's the reason he descended to hell won't work. Um, did he go preach to the captives uh, that I have the keys of death? Uh, that is, yes. Yeah, I, I actually completely believe that. Um, and said, here's the victory of God, and it's in my hand, right? Um, who he was preaching to is... Um, the subject of some debate and not consequential. Um, so here we go. Next, speaking of ascending or descending, the Bible says he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, by the way, the right hand specifically is a place of, of judgment. It's not just a place of governance and rule. It's specifically a place of judgment. Uh, and it says next, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, right? And then this is Jesus's job. Jesus, uh, Jesus not only saves, um, but he also judges, right? So you heard him and people, I hear people quote this to me all the time. Jesus said himself that he didn't come to judge. Why are you so judgy? Why? Right, I get this all the time. Um, and it's true. It's true. Uh, that verse is true. 
He did not come the first time to judge, but the second time he is. I mean, it's just, just very simple hermeneutics, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's not complicated. Um, and, and, uh, and along with the justice of God and the judge of God, somewhere in the heart of God, the Bible says, it, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is not his, his uncompassionate heart, right? Um, uh, so I, I think that that's quite important. So yes, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Uh, should you look at in your life God as a judge? Is that unhealthy for you to look at God as a judge? Not at all. No, I think that's a good thing. Um, so when we say he ascended into heaven, we're talking about his victory and his coronation. Um, uh, next, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, and, and, and at the right hand of the Father, by the way, what, what did he do when Stephen was stoned to death? What did he do? He stood up, just like a judge would, uh, proclaiming his innocence for all of heaven and none of earth to know that he was falsely accused and completely vindicated and called him home. And he will judge the living and the dead. The next part says the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, it's your, your punctuation, excuse me, your capitalization here is very important. If it is capital C, we are talking about Rome, the Holy See, Ratzinger, Benedict, uh, Pope John the Paul II, and all of their theology, right? Which is a problem because we don't, re we don't believe that Mary is the co-redeemer. We don't believe that, right? We don't believe that the Pope speaks ex cathedra. We don't hold to the same Bible that they hold to. There's a lot that we disagree with, a lot. Uh, a lot that's very consequential, actually. Um, but when we say small c, we can get behind that. Because that's just an adjective that means universal. So uh, you, you should believe in the body of Christ. You should believe. You should take great joy in the fact that, that you have brothers and sisters around the world, right? That's a, that's a good thing. Uh, I love our children. You just need to know that. Sincerely, it doesn't bother me one iota. The only reason I brought it up is because she was smiling at the howling, and I just thought it was great. <laughs> so um, um, here we go. Uh, what is the church uh, to, to be? Well, it's supposed to be universal. Uh, by the way, by universal, we're also meaning unified. We need to be unified. Now, listen to the, the, the humor of God, okay? God calls in his own ranks the 12 to start the church with. He constituted the church with them, okay? And the guys that he called together were uneducated, many of them, most of them, fishermen and men of every walk of life. But I want you to listen to the far range that we get, okay? We get um, uh, Simon the Zealot. Okay, Simon the Zealot, uh, if, if your name was Zealot, okay, you were a nationalist. I always call this my Zealot Corner, right, because they, they carried daggers, and they did because the Zealots believed in militaristic overthrow of Rome, like with a knife, like, like they actually carried around daggers. You still haven't got yours, and I'm horribly disappointed. Um, but zealots did. Now, so one of his disciples is a zealot that wants to kill all Romans and overthrow Rome. And guess who else he calls as a disciple? Levi or Matthew, the tax collector who worked for Rome, specifically for Rome, right? Um, Simon would have just as soon as cut Zacchaeus as see him, 
you know? And, and, and these are the men that, that are called in to the church. So when we say that we believe in the universal church, it's not just believing in it. It's believing in it enough to see some solidarity in it and understanding the unity and the diversity in it, right? I mean, doesn't God have a great sense of humor to call these men brothers? And these men shared camp for three years together with the Son of God. Uh, we can probably get rid of our differences, right? And, and it's, Jesus, in his great wisdom, called these men knowing exactly the walks of life that they would come from so that he could put on display for you and I 21 centuries later, right, what all of this looks like and what our lives are to look like when they are unified. This is the reason that Jesus came and said, brothers love one another. And he was putting that all on display. Okay, so um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, um, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the communion of saints. We're not going to have time to get to it all. We're, we're just not. Um, nevertheless, let me tell you what, what all this is. Obviously, you believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't forget about him. What is the communion of saints? Uh, is it just talking about communion? It is not at all talking about communion. It is talking about the fellowship that believers have, the, the, the solidarity that they have with one another, right? Uh, is there the idea of actual communion of saints just within people who love one another? Yes. Do we believe in the forgiveness of sins? It's one of the most seriously thought about things in Christian living, that Christians must forgive one another and must seek forgiveness from others who they have wronged. Um, and of course, the life everlasting, uh, that's the idea of immortality. Um, that's where that comes from. So here's, here's the conclusion. Um, what is the creed? It is the following. Uh, what was it and what does it remain to be? It's a polemic against false teaching, right? Uh, now, the word polemic is the opposite of apologetic. Apologetic is the defense of the faith. That's what apologetics are. Um, apologetics are the defense of the faith. The word polemic is when you go on the offense. This is what we were doing in London with uh, Muslims at Speaker's Corner. Not uh, apologetics, but polemics. That's when you go on the, you go on the offense. So polemic is spelled P-O-L-E-M-I-C. P-O-L-E-M-I-C, polemic. Um, and, and that's what the creed is. The creed is a polemic against a secular worldview for you. That's what it is. Uh, what else is it? Well, it, it's a baptismal confession. Always has been. Uh, what else is it? It's a, it's a teaching outline. A, a, a great one. I haven't done a great job with it, but it's nevertheless it's a teaching, teaching outline. Uh, it's a guard and a guide. A guard and a guide. Uh, just like our own... Our own fleshly creeds are also a guard and a guide in, in probably all the wrong ways. It is the summary of our faith, right? It's the summary of our faith. And lastly, it is an affirmation of worship. It is an affirmation of worship. Um, so... Um, Preach to your thing, to yourself, the right things. Believe, believe the right things. Um, yeah, that's just most most important. Um, 
and uh, have people around you, all of you, who love one another enough to when you are believing the wrong things, that you have the right people to come next to you and to say, don't believe the wrong thing. All right, we're going to take the Lord's table uh, at this time. I invite you to come with, with joy. Joy, 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 joy. And, and the good things that God has done for you um, and the gifts that he's given us, um, the sins that he's forgiven us uh, of, uh, and you come confessing your own sins today and just see grace, enjoy it as you take, take the Lord's table, um, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Lord, we do love you. We thank you, God, for um, the command to take this table, God, as we offer it to um, one another now. We pray that it would be a, a loud voice, a, a loud voice uh, to our own heart of, of your mercy and grace to, to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.